We're going to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 7, if you have a a Bible in front of you, uh, or with you, rather. Uh, If not, you can use one of the church Bibles and turn to page 812. You'll find a reading uh, there on page 812. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 will be our text this morning. Uh, As we're turning there, I want to just kind of share a a few things with you briefly. Uh, It'll be sort of like the mini-sermon before the real sermon, so it's a twofer this morning. Um, And and what I want to share with you is just the fact that our church is growing, growing in ways that really are breathtaking, uh, growing in ways that are astonishing, growing in ways that it's, it's actually hard to, to keep up with the growth. Um, and what I want to say about that is your current leadership probably thinks about growth a little bit differently than maybe you're used to. Uh, because as you hear me say that, you, you look around the room, you say, wow, it looks like you know, about the same as it's been for the past year and a half or so. And that would be true uh, if you're viewing growth simply numerically, uh, which to me is, is really immaterial. Uh, numbers aren't all that important to me, and numbers really aren't all that important to your staff or to your elder board either. Uh, But what is important is that we are growing in our relationship with Christ, and so there are different metrics that we use to evaluate growth, and I want to share five with you really briefly this morning and just give you a little illustration of each one of these is happening in our church currently. Uh, these come from Jared Wilson in a book called The Gospel-Driven Church. The first metric for growth is a growing esteem for Jesus Christ. You know a church is growing when a church begins to love and treasure and value Jesus more than it previously did. And um, we can always be growing in that. We never, uh, will never arrive in that area. But I think if you just look at the, the lyrics of the songs that we're singing, uh, Christ is being exalted. And, and I think many of us would attest to a growing love for Jesus as a result of the ministry that's happening here. I can say that personally myself, so that's a cause for great joy. Number two, a discernible spirit of repentance. This might come as a surprise to you, but none of us are perfect. We're all sinners. And so as long as we remain sinners, the need for repentance will also remain. And one of my greatest joys pastorally is to see or hear uh, an individual express verbally and through their actions an understanding of their own sin and their need to live differently. Had that happened just this past week. Uh, what a joy it is to see someone respond to God's truth and grace with repentance. So that's increasing in our church. Number three, a dogged devotion to the Word of God. You know, it's one thing for me each and every week to come up and say, open your Bibles to, open your Bibles to. Uh, But when I think about just what happened this past weekend, uh, both at Maud and at the men's breakfast and the commitment that many of you have to sitting down with another believer and reading the Bible together, that tells me that we're growing in our devotion to the Bible. It's easy to say that you're devoted to the Bible. It's very different to live that way. Um, Scott Frederick was sharing with me that uh, on Palm Sunday while I was away, one of his biggest encouragements was that as Pastor Josh was preaching, he could hear the pages of the Bible flittering away as Josh led you around in the book of Luke. That's a positive. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you really should have one, Uh, whether it's one of the pew Bibles or on your phone, a dogged devotion to the Word of God. Number four, an interest in theology and doctrine. For the longest time, I think people have believed that theology and doctrine is boring. 
But there's no Christian life without theology and doctrine. You say, I just want to love Jesus. I say, who's Jesus? Now we're doing theology, right? So I've seen you in the bookstore. I've seen you buying God's big picture. I've seen you reading theological books, and that is a cause for great joy. That's a sign, a demonstration that our church is growing. And number five, an evident love for God and neighbor. Just this morning, uh, talking to one of our own about the way in which he is reaching out to his neighbors with the truth of the gospel through prayer and handing out Bibles. He loves the Lord and he loves his neighbor as himself. That's a sign, again, that our church is growing. And the reason that this is important for us to understand as a church is that as we continue to grow in this way, the church will be incredibly attractive incredibly attractive because the church is us it's not our services it's not what we can produce or provide we are the church and so to be an attractive church an attractional church the point is to grow in these five areas and i just want to tell you as your pastor i'm thrilled at what god is doing in our community as we grow in these ways so that's a mini sermon before the real sermon matthew chapter uh, 7 verses 1 to 12 page 812 in the church bibles i'll read uh, and then we'll pray and dive in here is the lord jesus christ and the sermon on the mount he says judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, all the wonderful and encouraging things that you're doing in our midst, the way in which you're causing us to grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus and our devotion to your word. And so we pray this morning that both of those things would meet as we uh, open the scriptures yet again and seek to hear from you. And so we pray that your spirit would come that you would make us teachable and receptive to your word, that like the Thessalonians, we would receive this not as the words of a mere man, but as the word of the living God, and that our lives would be transformed, changed into the image of Jesus as we hear from him in the Sermon on the Mount. So Lord, would you come and be our teacher and our helper, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to creatively consider what it would have been like if our 21st century 
24-hour news cycle had been around in the first century when Jesus first preached the Sermon on the Mount. What would the news coverage have, have been like um, when Jesus preached if the news media had access to all the technology that we now have? I mean, you can almost imagine that before Jesus began to preach, the satellite trucks would have pulled up, uh, Fox News on one side, CNN very far off in another corner, steady, easy. Uh, but both news outlets would have arrived and their staffs would have gotten out and gotten ready to cover this amazing teacher and the message that he was going to proclaim. And as we tuned in and began to watch the live coverage, what we would have found on the bottom of the screen would have been a series of quotes. Jesus of Nazareth, colon, judge not. Jesus of Nazareth, colon, ask, seek, knock. Jesus of Nazareth, colon, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. I'd imagine that those three quotes would continue to scroll across the bottom of our television screens, no matter what your favorite 24-hour news channel is. But I think if we actually listened to the sermon while those quotes were scrolling, we would have scratched our heads. Because we would have found that Jesus was being profoundly misquoted. Now that might sound strange to you because everything that I've just said comes directly from the Sermon on the Mount. It just simply doesn't tell the whole story. Each of those quotes are ripped right out of their context and shared in a way that's really misleading. And I think that many of us, maybe even most of us, have come in this morning familiar with all three of those quotes, having heard the sort of soundbite interpretation of them that fails to give any acknowledgement to the context. And I think one of the reasons that that's the case is that it seems like these three quotes, as wonderful and as beautiful and as valuable as they are, seem to be unrelated. And so it's easy for us to just sort of pick them out of context and use them in any way that we'd like. But if you'd notice with me, just humor me here, if we, if we look at verse 3 of chapter 7 and then verse 12 of chapter 7, what we find is that Jesus covers everyone that you and I may deal with, may have relationship with, spanning from our brothers all the way to the others, right? So verse, thir- uh, verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you. We're talking about relationships from everyone, from our brothers all the way through to the others. Now I was helped supremely by John Stott in understanding the line through this text. Surprise, surprise, when he writes, the connecting thread which runs through the chapter, however loosely, is that of relationships. It would seem quite logical that having described a Christian's character in the Beatitudes, influence, salt and light, righteousness, piety, and ambition, Jesus should concentrate finally on his or her relationships. For the Christian counterculture is not an individualistic, but a community affair. And relations both within the community and between the community and others are of paramount importance. So what this text is seeking to cover in sweeping scope is how do I deal with everyone? How do I deal with everyone in relationships? And what Jesus commands is that his disciples, it's you and I, if we've believed in Jesus, practice righteousness in their relationships with God and 
others. We're calling our message this morning Relational Righteousness. Relational Righteousness. So I want to look first at relationships with our brothers and sisters, that is, fellow believers, in verses 1 to 5. Look at the passage with me just briefly. Judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged. Now we've seen on the television screen in front of us the quote, scroll past, judge not, and we've been tempted to think that what Jesus is saying is that he's forbidding any sort of moral or ethical judgment altogether. But that's a massive problem, isn't it? It's a problem just in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, because if you let your eyes scroll down to verse 6, verse 6 is very difficult to understand if moral judgments are always wrong. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Call me simple, but it seems to me nearly impossible to not give holy things to dogs or pearls to swine without first making a judgment about who the dogs and who the pigs are. In the larger context of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, Jesus is going to go on to explain to you and to me what the proper process is of helping a brother or sister caught in sin. Jesus says, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault. But wait a minute, judge not, lest you be judged. They've got to somehow be synthesized, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Sounds a bit judgmental, doesn't it? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged. The question, of course, that the text is begging is, what does it mean to judge? What does it mean to be judgmental? What does it mean to to fall foul of what Jesus is commanding in this passage? And I think it's vastly different than what sort of the popular notion is about do not judge. Because in actual fact, what the text is commanding is a, a great deal of judgment. What Jesus is forbidding, if you allow yourself just to look at the text, is not judgment full stop. What Jesus is forbidding is an eagerness to judge a brother or sister that is paired with, this is key, a refusal to judge yourself. That's what Jesus is forbidding. A desire to judge a brother or sister in Christ paired with a refusal to judge yourself. Look at what Jesus says, verse 2. With the judgment you pronounce, that is the standard, the measure, he says, that you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, it's okay. If you're going to judge a brother or sister in Christ, just understand that whatever standard you apply to them, the Lord, I take the divine passive here, the Lord will 
will turn that standard around on you. So it's in your best interest, Mr. and Mrs. Judge, to first apply the very same standard to yourself that you are then going to apply to others, because God is going to do it anyway. Jesus says, judge yourself, verse 3. What does this look like? It looks like first having a sight of sin. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice, that is see, the log that is in your own eye? I mean, the, the illustration is ridiculous. A speck versus a log. Jesus says, why don't you see the log that is in your own eye? In other words, why don't you see and maximize rather than minimize the sin in your own life before approaching a brother or sister with the sin in his or her life. Not only is there sight for sin, but verse 4, there's removal of sin. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? He spells it out in verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye. Now, we talk about this as a staff all the time. This is the principle of dealing with your own sin first. Dealing with your own sin first. Now, nearly every word of that sentence is of value, especially the word first. Because if you notice, Jesus does not forbid a brother or sister in love going to another brother or sister and saying, hey, listen, I've noticed these sinful patterns in your life. I've noticed that you're tangled up in this area. Let me point this out to you and let's walk together in love and mercy and grace towards holiness. He doesn't forbid that. He actually commands that. But he says, first, before you do that, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, how this relates to standards of judgment and measures and, and all of that is if you are dealing with your own sin first, if you are confessing your sin before the Lord first, your harshest standard will be to yourself. And the way that you judge your brother and sister will be relatively lax because you'll know who you really are when held up to the scrutiny of the holiness of God. Deal with your own sin first. When I was in uh, Bible college, I had this really bizarre experience, and I was, I was reading a lot. I was taking a large course load. I was reading hours at night, and I began to, in my, my right eye, I began to experience this pain. And, and I, it just was natural for me to think, I'm reading too much. I actually had an eye doctor give me his counsel. He said, you've got to blink, man. That was his, his help to me. You've got to blink, man. But what, what I found was is that when I started to blink, it hurt more. So I'd be reading, and I'm looking down, and I start to blink, and it, and it hurt more. And then after I'd blink for a while, my eye would be like completely bloodshot. So I went back to the doctor, to the eye doctor, and he looked, and if you know me, I'm very like, my two things are heights and, and my eyes. Like, I don't have contacts because I'm weird about my eyes. I don't want any, like, eye drops touching my eyes. I go back to the eye doctor. He looks at my eye and he goes, oh, we've got to pull that out. I have no idea how this happened, but I had somehow gotten a very, very tiny, like, shred of glass in my eye. 
And let me tell you something. When he pulled that out, I was in no way upset with him. I was very pleased with him. I said, job well done, right? And what Jesus is getting at here is not the idea that you should never help a brother or sister out with pulling the speck out of their eye. What he's getting at is deal with your own sin first. Here's how the gospel addresses this. If Jesus has forgiven you, believer in Christ, if Jesus has forgiven you all of your sin, if he has saved you from your sins, you are free to be as honest and brutal as possible about the reality of who you really are. Because he already knows it all, he's already pardoned it all, and he already loves you because he loves you. So pull the log out. And then once you've done that, come help me pull the speck out of my own eye because I want to be like Jesus too. That's the picture that Jesus paints of our relationships with our brothers and sisters. What about our relationships with those interesting folks that Jesus refers to as dogs and pigs in verse 6? Do not give dogs, he says, what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Dogs and pigs, interesting bunch. I think what Jesus is getting at here when he talks about that which is holy is he's alluding to uh, that the food that was associated with the sacrifices in the Old Testament, those were only to be eaten by the priests. Jesus says you wouldn't take the sacrificial food and throw them to some mangy mutt. You know, Jesus is not talking about your domesticated dog here. Uh, One time when I was in Oaxaca, Mexico, there were these sort of like scavenging dogs that would run right into people's homes and the areas that they would cook outside. It was an outdoor sort of community, and they would try to take the food from families. That's the kind of dog that Jesus is thinking of. He says, you wouldn't give what is holy to a mangy mutt, nor would you put pearls before pigs. What he means by pearls, chapter 13, he alludes to the kingdom as a pearl of great price. What Jesus is saying here is that there are some, those dogs and pigs, who have proved by their violent antagonism and obstinate heart related to the gospel, they've proved they're unworthy for the things related to the gospel. Jesus says there is a point where enough is actually enough. Where it's no longer beneficial to continue to preach, to continue to share, to continue to plead, because people violently oppose. I think the problem is, is that you and I are far too quick to determine whether someone's a dog or a pig than we ought to be. I've been a Christian for 15 years and have been actively sharing my faith for that entire time. I can think of one person, one person in all that time who may just fit this description. And if I'm wrong, I want the Lord to show me in mercy and grace that I am wrong. Because I think about the Apostle Paul. Was he a dog or a pig as he led Christians away to persecution? Think about former slave trader John Newton. Was he a dog or pig as he traded in human beings? Think about myself and the depth of sin in my heart. Was I a dog or a pig refusing the gospel? I don't know. It's very difficult, very sensitive. But Jesus says our relationship to those who are dogs and pigs is not to continue to allow the pearl of the kingdom of heaven to be trampled underfoot. This is not a don't waste your breath. It's a don't dishonor the gospel. 
We want to be hesitant and cautious in the way that we apply it. But nevertheless, this is our relationship to dogs and pigs. What about our relationship to the Heavenly Father? Verse 7. Here is Jesus' second famous quote. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. This is too good to be true. This is a blank check, isn't it? Anything you ask for in prayer, the Lord will give you if you just persist in asking and seeking and knocking. You can twist the Lord's arm and eventually He'll give you anything you'd like. Well, that would be foolish, wouldn't it? Again, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just used the word seek a few verses earlier. Chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first, Jesus says, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are the these things? The these things are food and drink and clothing. Well, that's fascinating because Jesus just said, uh, as He explained the asking and seeking and knocking, that no good father who's actually an evil person, but a good father nevertheless, would give his child a stone when asked for bread or a serpent when asked for fish. So contextually, we're talking about seeking the things of the kingdom. And within Jesus' own illustration, I want you to notice that good gifts are defined by the giver and not the receiver. So look at the text for a moment. The good gifts are defined by the giver, not by the receiver. He does not say, which of you as a child, received good gifts from your father. That would be good gifts as defined by the receiver. Rather, Jesus says, which one of you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Which one of you will give his child bread if, uh, or a stone when asked for bread? Good gifts. The goodness of the gifts are defined by the giver. So it's not really a blank check, is it? Each and every one of you who have children know something of this. I can tell you right now that if it were up to Henry, every morning would begin with Minecraft and chocolate chip cookies. That is, by definition, not good, right? And it's not the wisdom of Henry that defines what is good. It's the wisdom of his father, so when Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, here is not a blank check that you can pray for absolutely anything and God's just going to, his arm's going to be twisted and eventually he's going to do what you want him to do. What this promise is, you can bank on it in its context in the Sermon on the Mount, is that when you and I pray for those things that are part and parcel of seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, and we do so persistently, the tense of the verbs is present imperative. It means keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. When praying in that way for those things, Jesus says you can expect an answer to your request. So much damage has been done by taking these kinds of verses out of context, the healing that we so long for doesn't come. The job that we'd hope for never arrives. The person that we've been praying for to come to Christ remains in unbelief. And so we say, you know, this whole thing doesn't work. God made the promise, but He won't fulfill it. But I'd like to just humbly suggest that maybe it's you and I who've misunderstood the promise. 
and God who's remained faithful. How am I going to deal with my own sin? How am I going to remain humble and meek? How am I going to have the characteristics of one who's characterized by the Beatitudes? How will I not perform my righteousness before others in order to be seen by them? How will I avoid laying up for myself treasures on earth? How can I be freed from anxiety? Well, I'll tell you what I can't do. I can't do it on my own. And more often than not, what prayer reveals is something about confidence in one of two ways. Either an overconfidence in self or an underconfidence in God. And the very moment that I try to do this on myself, I display uh, I'm either way too confident in my own ability or I haven't come to even catch a glimpse of the power and glory and the ability of my loving Heavenly Father. Relationship to the Heavenly Father is one of prayer. Finally, relationship to others. Verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Profound misunderstanding of what Jesus says. Again, every word that is spoken by our Lord is important. And I want you to notice what Jesus actually says. He says, do unto others as you wish that they would do to you for this is, here's the explanation, this is the reason, for this is the law and the prophets. This has been the entire Sermon on the Mount. Do you realize that? Everything that Jesus has been preaching has been an exposition of the Old Testament. Everything. All the way back to chapter 5 and verse 17 when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And everything that he said all the way to 7.12 has had to do with the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. We said back in chapter 5 that we obey the Old Testament by obeying Jesus. That if Jesus is Lord, what he says goes. And what's beautiful about the way that Jesus exercises his lordship is it simplifies I mean, think about how little need you have for specifics if the governing principle of ethics with other people per Jesus is whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You wish that someone wouldn't covet your wife, don't covet someone else's wife. You wish that someone would pray for you without ceasing, then you should pray for them without ceasing. There is an old sort of scoffer hack comedian who thought he was really cute because he could take the Ten Commandments down to three. And he has this whole bit, it's vulgar, it's blasphemous, about how the Ten Commandments are really unnecessary. You can get them from ten down to three. And in so doing, he thought that he completely obliterated the Judeo-Christian worldview. But do you see what Jesus does? Jesus does something better. Jesus gets it down to two. He gets it down to two. Later on in Matthew, Jesus is asked by a lawyer, Matthew 23, 34-39, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's commandments 1-4. through four. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Commandment 5-10. through 10. On these two commandments, these two, depend all the law and the prophets. 
The governing principle for Jesus as we relate to others is do to them what you wish they would do to you. There are so many religions that have this sort of golden rule built into them. But Christianity is the only religion that has it stated positively. Other instances of the golden rule say something like, whatever you wish that someone would not do to you, then don't do it to them. I want, to see, I want you to see how radical this ethic is from Jesus. To state it positively, it goes something along the lines of this. If I say to a, a child, don't hit your sister, because you wouldn't like to be hit, that's rather simple to obey. But if I say to a child, do to your sister what you would want done to yourself, that means that there's no limit to the amount of kindness. There's no limit to the amount of sacrifice. There's no limit to the amount of preference. There's no limit to the amount of service that is to be done in obedience to that verse. To state this positively is simply to say, love your neighbor in the very same way with the same intensity, the same focus, the same sacrifice as you would love yourself. And the only reason that you and I can ever begin to approximate that is if you and I realize that Jesus is the example of that par excellence. Jesus who loved his neighbor unto death. Jesus being willing to lay down his life on a cross to save his people from their sins out of love and a desire to see something done to others as he would have done for himself. He gave himself. Because he loved his neighbor in the very same way, with the same intensity, the same sacrifice, the same focus as he loved himself. All of this is just such an incredibly tall order. I mean, when you really begin to think about what the Christian life is like, and I hope that you've gotten this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, when you really begin to wrestle with what does it mean to be a Christian? Not what does culture say it means to be a Christian. Not what popular Christian writing says it means to be a Christian. But what Jesus says it means to be a Christian. If you don't believe in grace, then there's no way you'll ever be a Christian. I mean, in more ways than one. Because the standard that set this kind of lifestyle is utterly impossible. It's radical. It's demanding. It's reorienting. It turns us upside down, which is actually right side up. But the fuel and the driving factor in all of it is what Christ will do in Matthew 27, Matthew 28, as He lays down His life and raises again for our sins so that we might know Him. It's only in the Gospel that we are able to judge ourselves before we judge others. It's only in the Gospel that we have the audacity, the boldness to believe that God is our Heavenly Father? Our Heavenly Father? You mean I can pray to Him? Like in the same way that I would ask my dad for a meal? Well, only because Jesus has made you a son or a daughter. And it's only in the Gospel that we see what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. And to say, Jesus, if you have done that for me, then there's nothing that you don't have the right, the lordship, to demand that I do for others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was famous for saying 
Uh, there's a lot of cheap grace. We're not about cheap grace. We're about costly grace. Grace that costs Jesus his very life and which demands yours of you. This is how we relate to absolutely everybody, from our brothers down to the others. We do it all by God's grace in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you just so aware of how far short we fall of the standards that you've set. Lord, even as those who have been freed by your grace to know you and to love you and to be known by you, we confess, as others have, that we maximize the sins of others and minimize our own. We're far too quick to look at others and view them as dogs and pigs unworthy of the goodness of Jesus, and so we cast them out. We display an either overconfident sense of our own ability to achieve what you've commanded of us or a lack of confidence in your goodness as our Heavenly Father to give good gifts to us as your children. And so often we love ourselves without realizing it's that very same kind of love with which we're supposed to love our neighbors. And so, Lord, yet again, we find ourselves cast onto the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we pray that your grace would be poured out upon us again through your Son, the kind of grace that forgives our sin, but also makes us new and enables us to obey everything that you have commanded. Lord Jesus, you are the King. We are members of your kingdom. Lord, help us to honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.